to Shot Reverse Shot, where this week uh, we're going to take the opportunity to talk about uh, science fiction, uh, because uh, as some of you might know, uh, there is currently an ongoing season in the UK, run by the BFI, the British Film Institute, uh, called Days of Fear and Wonder, and it's uh, celebrating all that is sci-fi and runs, uh, kind of started in October and runs to December. Um, Why celebrate sci-fi, Ed? Well, it's a a genre that is one of the few that's kind of perpetual. Um, I guess if you're going to count something like comic book movies as sci-fi, you could argue that the genre has never been more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if you're willing to count the Transformers films as sci-fi, it's one that's certainly successful. Um, but I, it's, I don't even count those as films. <laughs> no one should. No one should count them as anything. Um mm. But yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a genre that obviously is, has been around, has lots of permutations. Some of the uh, greatest films ever made are science fiction films, things like Two Thousand and One, Metropolis, um, going you know the headier stuff, Solaris and Stalker, or even just like the more more fun stuff like Star Wars. You know, there's there's a whole uh, slew of films that have are, are perceived to be great uh and that which are uh, critically acclaimed and kind of acceptable by the establishment uh, it is it does seem odd that doesn't it that, that sci-fi seems to be more accepted by the establishment uh than something like horror or action or uh, martial arts or something like that um um is it because it allows for maybe a broader range of artistic expression possibly um i think that probably has part is part of it. I also think that it may have something to do with the fact that they are with science fiction. There's often a social component to it. It's kind of social critique to it that uh, you do see in a lot of horror films, but horror films, it, it has to be kind of, or doesn't have to be, but it often is um, wedded to, you know, more visceral stuff, you know, violence and gore or, or cheap shocks and things like that. And those are the sort of things that is very easy for a, for critics to uh, look down on and mm. use that to dismiss, say, uh, society's uh, 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 critique of uh, the of wealth disparity, you know. So people can just kind of say, "Oh, it's just a load of body horror," rather than kind of a, a very keen uh, Marxist attack on the class system. Mm. Yeah, it is kind of notable. I mean, I mean, we kind of talked on our. Uh, alternate 100 list um, that we've been kind of doing this year. That uh, kind of so I'm kind of quite familiar with the BFI's top 100 list, um, and you know there is a, sci-fi is very well represented. It's only really uh, the Western genre that has any other kind of competition for it. Really, I mean stuff like Legete and uh, like you say Stalker, Metropolis, 2001, Solaris, things like that always keep cropping up, but it's it's very rare to see you know, Freaks or M or, you know, uh, Halloween or The Shining prolifer- uh, proliferating in the same way. Yeah, and I think that uh, it also helps that with a lot of those, with a lot of sci-fi films, they are very pointedly about social issues in some ways or they're very 
obviously trying to deal with very big contemporary issues or big philosophical issues. If you look at something like like a Clockwork Orange, that's very obviously a discussion of the way in uh, the the conflict between control and anarchy and the idea the the question of is it worth allowing someone like Alex Delage to exist in the world um or should society clamp down on them in some ways and it, and that is a big part of uh, what that film is about and even though there's a, a darkly comic edge to it and you can uh, get a lot of uh, it, there's a lot of fun to be had just from the weirdness of the dialogue it's obviously a film dealing with big ideas and so therefore mm. it's easier for people to treat it seriously um in terms of definition of sci-fi i mean i think the the uh, the etymology of the word is probably comes from kind of fictitious use of science so could you probably argue that something like frankenstein is sci-fi or Jurassic Park is sci-fi. I would definitely think of Frankenstein as sci-fi. I often think of it as kind of the key um, sci-fi text in terms of establishing a type of science fiction storytelling that is used a lot, which is the idea of man meddling with things that they shouldn't. You also see that in Jurassic Park as well, obviously, which, again, I would say is a a sci-fi film at its heart because it's about people meddling with science and it uh, leading to a um, and it uh, turning badly on the people who use that science or misuse that science mm-hmm. yeah and in both those cases it doesn't really work out does it no or in uh, Westworld which is essentially the same as Jurassic Park but with cowboys instead of dinosaurs mm, yeah yeah it, seeing as the like, film is a technological medium uh, and a kind of a relatively modern in- invention. It's no uh, coincidence that he's the chief chronicler of uh, of um, misuse of science. Yeah, I think that it's one of the ones that can best illustrate that. Obviously, there's a lot of great um, there's a lot of great science sci-fi novels out there and and other forms. Uh, but I think that the visual component of film uh, really helps there because you can have the uh, the spectacle of realizing a futuristic world or a technology that no one's ever seen before and that is kind of a draw for audiences seeing something like in something like minority reports there's all this stuff about the nature of um of fate and predestination and things like that but also whenever people talk about minority report they also talk they talk about the idea of you know all those uh motion sensor screens that uh, mm. Tom Cruise and people use, and the idea of seeing technology that uh, doesn't exist now, but theoretically, or didn't exist then. I mean, you kind of could argue that a lot of the stuff that's seen in Minority Report, in terms of stuff like the Connect, is is essentially the same idea has actually come to pass now. Um, but at the time, that sort of stuff seemed completely outside the realm of possibility. So seeing it, something realised that you've not seen before is a I, I think a big draw of of sci-fi. Yeah, I think the the thing that springs to mind when I think about Minority Report is um there's a really shameless bit of product placement where he goes into Gap to buy some clothes or something and it scans his eyes and it says 
uh, like a virtual shop assistant turns up and says, "Hey Jeff, are you enjoying those uh, brown cords you bought two weeks ago?" Uh, and then I just thought I can just, you know, just imagine a million like marketing executives literally growing erect at the possibility of that of that thing because that's uh, you, you look at like we're going on websites now and like cookies and and you know how invasive. Uh, things like that are that is the natural progression and in that and it seems quite mundane uh, rather than having like hoverboards and phaser guns yeah i think irobot's pretty bad for that as well if i remember correctly there's lots of uh lots of stuff where uh the background there are these futuristic versions of brands that exist now and on one level you think oh that's that adds a certain degree of verisimilitude because you think chances are the gap is going to be around in a hundred years time or whatever um and uh, these things will still be a part of everyday life but the other the other hand you think yeah they've paid a lot of money to be featured as a <laughs> as part of this film yeah well i think the the flip side of that is um like one of my kind of like uh i'm not going to call it a guilty pleasure because i think it's like genuinely a great film um but it's certainly an underappreciated one uh, in the film demolition man um when uh uh Sylvester Stallone's character is awoken in the future and he's taken out for dinner and they take him to Taco Bell and uh, he's like, oh, okay, can we not go anywhere nicer? And they have to like explain to him that in the future all restaurants are Taco Bell, which is a <laughs> uh, a, uh, a kind of horrifying thought because that's, uh, I mean, I don't want to get sued by Taco Bell, but their food's terrible. Yeah, I was trying to think of um, examples of films that have no contemporary branding in them. Uh, and the two that I thought of uh, immediately, uh, two films that couldn't be more different in tone, would be like Spike Jones's Her, which invents mm-hmm. a lot of new technology and companies to have play around in the background, um, including the idea of um, personal uh, greeting cards written by complete strangers, which I think is is really cool and interesting. Uh, and uh, Mike Judge's Idiocracy, which... Uh, of kind of can't feature any real life brands because it's taking the piss out of them the whole way through. Mm, also, uh, Repo Man. Oh yeah, uh, which is is not explicitly science fiction, I guess, in the sense that it's set in the distant future, but it's kind of a it's hard to pin down, and there's a flying car in it, uh, so it's definitely not in our reality. But all the brands are they just say soap or beer on them because uh, they couldn't afford to get the clearances, <laughs> so they just kind of made that up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't see this conversation moving all towards the the product placement kind of angle, but it's a kind of interesting thing, and I think that a lot of people are still pinning the hopes on because 2015 is next year, and that's the year that Back to the Future Two is set, uh, and it's the, you know people are still pinning their hopes on hoverboards and uh, the Cubs winning the World Series, but mm, not going to happen, really, are they? I mean, the second definitely not as likely. Yeah, I was going to say the first one seems more possible. Um, mm. There are always stories. I think there was a story only a few weeks ago where someone said they had developed a working hoverboard, but you can never know how much that is people just trying to get page views by talking about something that obviously is uh, a big deal for uh, people in their 20s and 30s who grew up watching uh, Back to the Future and think oh, it's going to be great when we can sit down and uh, or, or or rather when we have our own hoverboards and they can fail to float over water mm. even though the thing that people seem to forget in uh, in um 
about the future too is that the fax machine is also very prevalent. Yeah, uh, he, he doesn't get fired from his job via fax machine. He does. He gets fired by fax machine, and also Max Spielberg has really been letting the side down in cranking out those Jaws sequels. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it did correctly guess that uh, predict that uh, 3D would still be around, though. Yeah, probably not in the way that it thought um, that it would be. It would kind of die and come back um, in the space of yeah a few short years. Um, Martin McFly is right that it looks fake, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a mixed bag um, as, as far as prediction goes. Yeah, it's not quite the oracle that it kind of thought it would be, but you know, you can't have everything. Um, like the, the season, the BFI season is called uh, Days of Fear and Wonder, and kind of touched upon the fact that sci-fi is a blank canvas, really, for anyone to kind of uh, explore other worlds and uh, those kind of wondrous things. Um, but in terms of uh, being about fear, it's uh, you know could be one of the bleakest genres. Um, and uh, you know, I think we spoke just before uh, we went on about it being constantly used to used to explore uh, kind of man's like kind of uh, enduring fear of like apocalyptic things happening. Yeah, I mean, when we're recording this, uh, Interstellar has just opened in opened worldwide and that is a film that it fits very much into that into that genre because it's all about a an earth which has been ravaged by a uh a war and uh, ecological disasters that have created a kind of perpetual dust bowl and you know the idea of people having to abandon earth in order to find a new place to live and uh even though the effects of it are, are, are something that's are clearly very modern and contemporary that idea is uh you can see that in stuff like well pretty much most pre-star wars sci-fi films from the 70s things like um soylent green or um uh, uh silent running they they all kind of have that idea of a version of the earth that is either completely falling apart or on the verge of falling apart because i think it's certainly in the 70s in America, there was definitely a sense that the world was completely falling apart and that the that the apocalypse was mere weeks away. Um, and you can kind of see in something like Soil and Green, which was produced at a time when you had uh, massive inflation and uh, uh, the economic situation in America was really on a horrible downturn, that the idea of people essentially eating the poor didn't, really seem like it was that far-fetched mm. yeah i think that with the rise of food banks in britain over the last kind of three years um it could become a horrifying reality or a horrifying reality tv show uh, <laughs> i don't know which one is is kind of more likely um but uh in terms of um like talking about like maybe post-apocalyptic worlds or kind of dystopian visions um, sci-fi is really uh, a kind of a, uh, a, a kind of a rich seam of of, uh, of possibility, isn't it? Yeah, because once you destroy the world, you kind of have carte blanche to do whatever you want with it. Really, um, certainly in something like, and it can encompass so many things from the the kind of the bleakness of uh, of the road, which mm-hmm. is obviously a very very. Uh, 
uh, bleak and depressing film about what it would take to survive after the world has, for all intents and purposes, ended. But you also have something like the vehicular mayhem of the Mad Max films, which, mm. again, are kind of playing on contemporary fears, the idea of running out of um, supplies to the extent that you have to uh, literally fight for the uh, petrol to carry you along the road, even like the next mile, but also, you know, allows you to watch cars get um, smashed up and people get killed in inventive ways. Mm. So you, the idea of society completely disappearing is, uh, I think, something that is a blank canvas for filmmakers uh, that can be used to great effect. Um, I always would like, I'm going to, I realize that I'm going to make a statement, which is going to be quite bold. And I realize that I am in a minority of people, um, in, in people in general, just like you could probably take a, like a global survey and I would be in a very small percentile of people who would agree with this statement. But I think Waterworld was a really missed opportunity, uh, because they seem to have just got the Mad Max 2 script and just done find and replace, like fuel for dry land. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think that it's certainly a missed opportunity in terms of uh, making something that is uh, a, a kind of hard-edged look at people trying to survive in that sort of a situation where the world has uh, kind of kicked out against humanity and people have to try and form new societies and survive and then allowing it to get dragged down in sort of excessive budget and star egos but mm. I, I definitely think that there is a a core premise to something like Waterworld that uh, sadly doesn't really get realised yeah I mean don't get me wrong it's a terrible film <laughs> um, and um, I think in, in Dennis Hopper's performance um, you, you're seeing literally one of the great uh scenery uh displays in recorded history um but i, I think that somewhere there, there's a kernel of a, of a decent idea somewhere um to the other end of the the spectrum um like uh what's your kind of uh favorite or kind of uh, uh most memorable kind of uh wondrous look at uh, our world or other worlds that has been explored through science fiction uh, certainly, I think one of the top one has to top ones has to be *Close Encounters of the Third Kind*, which is a film mm -hmm. predicated pretty much solely on a sense of wonder, because uh, it is a film that doesn't really have uh, much of a plot in the sense that it has things that happen, but you couldn't really say that there is a villain in that film. You couldn't say that really there are any heroes it's essentially just about people who have an alien experience and become obsessive and try and figure out what happened to them and the personal effect that that has and but also it's so that there you have a sense of mystery but really it's all about the sense of wonder and glory at encountering beings from another world and seeing that realized on screen using what at the time were uh, state-of-the-art special effects and still look really really uh glorious and impressive now mm. yeah it's it's kind of like I, I watched it kind of um a few months ago and i don't know if this is a harsh thing to say or not but i'm always kind of jolted into um 
whenever I'm reminded that um, Spielberg used to make um, big budget films for adults. I mean, he makes quite serious films now, like Lincoln and stuff, but they just don't really feel that. That feels like a a staid uh, kind of attempt to to make a a kind of uh, worthy film, whereas Close Encounters was a personal story to him on a grand scale, um, which is unashamedly entertaining, but not simplistic and kind of, uh, you know, Jurassic Park (laughs) 2. Yeah, he definitely seems to have a clear divide now between what are his adult films and what are his films just for blockbuster audiences and you can really see the perfect marriage of those two things in uh close encounters which is uh ironic because obviously it's a film about a less than perfect marriage mm. yeah absolutely which is you know one of his you know auteurish preoccupations if you want to kind of talk about that where do you stand on et um and don't say on his toes um, I really don't like E.T. Um, and I can't really explain why. Uh, I haven't seen it recently enough to say whether or not I like it now. I remember quite liking it as a kid, but not thinking that it was amazing. Mm. Like I, I, just, uh, I never really liked E.T., the actual thing. I just, I just kind of just wished he'd fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I never liked the way he looked. Um, mm. I think it's a really horrible design. I think that the one of the really terrible, terrible things about the um, about the director's cut that they release is they have more of ET, and you know they do that horrible thing where they should give him CGI legs. Um, oh no! When he's uh, really he's best served by not appearing that much in the film. Hmm. I never, I never really saw that director's cut version. Um, yeah, that, did they, that did they the, change a lot of it kind of post 9-11 to be a bit kind of cuddlier uh, that's where they did the thing where they replaced the guns of walkie talkies that right. um, South Park uh, ridiculed them for quite mercilessly and which Spielberg has come out and said yeah that was a terrible mistake and all future releases of the film will not have that version available mm, um, but still people bought it so a little bit of extra cash there yeah, yeah they pushed it further up the all time ranking yeah, yeah. Kind of Spielberg's kind of done a bit of everything in sci-fi wise. He's done the kind of kids sci-fi. Uh, he's done the kind of uh, uh, adult kind of benevolent sci-fi, like Close Encounters. He's also done the kind of end of the world. They're coming to get a sci-fi with War of the Worlds. Um, uh, he, he's kind of got it covered, really, hasn't he? Yeah, and he's even done the uh, kind of weird and hard to pin down sci-fi, something like AI which is a oh, film yeah, that encompasses a lot of disparate genres within itself. You know, obviously it's a sci-fi and it's set in a futuristic world where we have artificial it- intelligence and robots that are able to feel something akin to human emotions, but it also has a certain dystopian element to it in terms of once the uh, the, the kid, who I believe is called David, um, mm. is abandoned by his family and ends up in that kind of nightmarish um uh i think it's called the flesh market or something where he goes to uh they they have robots which are being tortured and used as sideshow attractions and obviously it has the kind of very strong emotional kind of undercurrent to it about of a child being abandoned and trying to find meaning so there's a there's a, a bigger kind of 
metaphysical quality to it and that that's a film that i think i find uh, very very uh, rewarding to rewatch uh, even though i think a lot of people do find it a little cloying but mm. it's, it's it is just so weird and hard to kind of pin down that uh, i just find it really fascinating mm. i think that might be one because i've never seen ai but it's one that from kind of you know, watching other people's reactions to it is definitely um, doesn't seem to be a middle ground. People are like, "This is a masterpiece," or "This is just dog shit." Yeah, it's and, it's definitely is a, is probably hit one of his most divisive films, um, in a very clear cut way that there are only two halves of the of the conversation. Yeah, um, in terms of uh, dealing with things, kind of. Uh, like time travel, um, do you think that kind of film does it better than any other medium uh, because it's you can kind of show it? You know, uh, I, I can't. I mean, obviously, there's like the Time Machine is a famous book, I believe, uh, by someone who kind of had a few things to say in the sci-fi genre. Um, but like, kind of, it's it's a it's a it's a trope that's explored again and again in films. Um, do you think that's because uh, people have a lot of fun speculating what the future is going to be like and revisiting the past? Yeah, I think in the case of, as we already talked about them, the, the Back to the Future films, a large part of the fun of that is seeing a filtered version of the past. Um, certainly in the first one, I think a, a large part of the fun of it is the people who uh, grew up in the 50s making a film about set in the 50s in the 80s and and kind of playing up the tropes of that and i think that that is a a really important part of it but i think also in something like uh looper which is a film we've talked about before Mm. which has two futures (laughs) um has one that's set uh, like 200 years from now and one that's like 240 years from now whatever it is um it's an opportunity to take certain ideas and certain trends in the culture and push them in uh in uh to kind of extremes into weird and interesting destinations people have a lot of fun with uh time travel uh films because it is i mean i'm not an astrophysicist but i think it's impossible but um but people have a lot of fun with the kind of continuum uh, space-time continuum kind of uh, antics of um, something like Twelve Monkeys, or it's the film that it's based on, Legete, or um, uh, other films like uh, there's a little Spanish film that came out a few years ago called Time Crimes, which is a lot of fun to watch. That has a lot of um, a lot of um, a kind of gives a lot of mileage out of uh, expectations of what you're seeing being uh, suggesting things that have happened in the future that may you may be watching unfold you don't quite understand uh, at the time. Um, but um, a lot of lower-budget films manage to explore um, time travel um, without having to kind of resort to kind of uh, fireworks and Wizards of Bangs. You mentioned Looper. I mean, that's not a massively low-budget film, but a couple we talked about before we went on, um, a film like Primer or a film like Pi uh, manages to uh, elevate its ideas above its concept. Yeah, I think that that is definitely one of the 
one of the really great things about science fiction in general is it, although it is associated with stuff that's made on a very big budget because that's the, the, some of the most popular examples do that. I think that it, because it's something that at its best is driven by ideas and wanting to explore concepts and uh, how humanity interacts with, you know, science and or how new developments can cause people to express the best and the worst of themselves. It's something that you can really see. Uh, it's something that is easy to explore in a low budget environment. Cause if you've got the idea and you can figure out a way of doing something cheaply, like primer is a good example, cause it only costs like eight grand to make. Um, mm. And it, it doesn't do anything overtly sci-fi ish, but it, it does enough to suggest uh, what's happening uh, in a, exciting and bewildering way um i think that as long as you have the kernel of a good idea and you can implement it well then uh, budget is kind of no limit to what you want to do with science fiction yeah i think um monsters uh, kind of mm. um yeah. on a lesser extent kind of in terms of ideas but definitely in terms of execution uh, proved that point a few years ago kind of film that cost you know in the thousands uh, sorry, the tens of thousands rather, but had a, you know, uh, a great central conceit and, um, you know, had masses of production belly all done um, and executed on a, on, a, on a shoestring. Yeah, or even something like, uh, it's on a slightly larger budget, but something like um, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, which is a film pretty much solely constructed in a computer at a time when people hadn't really done that. Um, mm. with live action films and that had a, a very distinct and uh, singular aesthetic that people hadn't really done before a kind of or that people hadn't done in a while like a retro futurist approach um, you can really see like that how someone who has the technical skill to make those images come to life uh, has a lot more uh, it gives them a lot of uh, power that you may not have in uh other genres. Mm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Interstellar earlier, um, but it seems to be kind of like a bit of a boom time for, for sci-fi at the moment. Um, you, you kind of, you serious kind of weighty films that are dealing with those kind of things, things like Gravity, which was a big critical success last year. Interstellar this year is getting kind of similar type of uh, notices. That's at one end of the spectrum, and then the other end of the spectrum, you got the you know the space operas coming back. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy was a was a massive hit this year, um, and you know we're going to get a couple more of those. Plus, like you mentioned before, if comic book films are kind of you can bundle those in, then yes, they're, they're kind of never more popular. But then also, we've got a little film called Star Wars coming out next year, um, which is sure to kind of cement it in the minds of people and a whole new generation. Yeah, it. I would say that definitely commercially, this seems like a a boom time for it. It feels like there's a variety and a level of success that uh, you haven't really seen with the genre before. Probably the most fertile time, and this is, is something that if anyone uh, go, reads the website The Dissolve, uh, their editor, Keith, Keith Phipps, has been writing a series called uh, uh, Laser Age, which is all about the the uh, science fiction films from the 60s and 70s the very uh 
socially and uh, uh, politically conscious sci-fi films. I think that um, that is was probably the time when it was the most uh, artistically kind of uh, bold and adventurous. Um, but definitely this time now you are seeing, or something, even something like the revamped Planet of the Apes films are, are films that are big budget sci-fi films that try to incorporate uh, kind of bigger ideas about human nature into their storytelling. Um, you do get kind of glimpses of that in a lot of the stuff now, and a lot of the lower budget stuff definitely feels like people are trying to use sci-fi to make uh, personal uh, stories again. Mm. Um, kind of more like the kind of, like I say, this is a kind of a payoff, but it's been going on for quite a while now. Like I think sci-fi, you get think about something like children of men, which was mm. uh, pretty great. Um, and, you know, things like we've discussed before, like the host, uh, District Nine was a lot of fun, uh, uh, even on a big scale. Something like Inception, which is kind of like a cracker's idea for a blockbuster, but massively successful. Um, things like Moon, um, it, it, you know, just kind of thinking back at it, it, it is actually quite, you know, we're, we're on quite a good run at the moment. Yeah, I think that in certainly a lot of those cases, it's uh, that you have a few examples of directors who make their bones doing uh, stuff that manages to be a huge success and then parlaying that into uh, something that they, they're more interested in on a personal level. Certainly Christopher Nolan, you can see him doing that twice because the Dark Knight made over a billion dollars worldwide and that allows him to say, hey, I've got this crazy idea about dream thieves. Um, can, I, can you give me $150 million to make it? And the studios will go... Yeah, you've made us enough money. Go and make us some mm. more. And uh, I think being given, allowing him the opportunity to make that film how he wanted it, uh, certainly contributes to the the sense that it's not just a kind of a uh, a cookie cutter blockbuster. It's something that's really unique and and uh, intriguing. And you can see that in Interstellar as well, because The Dark Knight Rises made another billion dollars. Um, and I think, but also science fiction seems to be a very good way for, for directors to uh, you kind of make a mark and use it as a calling card for themselves. You definitely have that with uh, Duncan Jones because Moon was a film that didn't get a huge amount of, uh, wasn't a huge commercial success, but it did okay. Um, mm. But it got, it was a film that was critically beloved and had a very fervent audience and he was able to use that to uh, make Source Code, which was a, a more commercially successful and still really kind of neat sci-fi film which had a very cool and well uh well used premise and then parlayed that into making Warcraft which is something that could be a huge success or a massive failure but um it definitely feels like sci if you can make a sci-fi film that people love and that demonstrates you're good at handling ideas in a commercially and uh intellectually interesting way then uh, it's a really that's kind of a great calling card to be able to move on to doing other projects. Um, just to kind of wrap things up now, um, have you got a favourite science fiction film, Ed? Uh, it, it is probably The Empire Strikes Back, just because it's one that I've watched so many times. Um, in terms of uh, 
apart from that, I think something like uh, Stalker, the Tarkovsky film, is one that I really, really love, primarily because I got to see it on the big screen as part of DocFest a few years ago because they had a uh, a documentary about Andrei Tarkovsky that they were showing, and they showed a couple of his films in uh, in conjunction with that. And seeing that on the big screen was a real... Uh, a really wonderful experience because his films are they're so kind of deliberately paced that you can't really watch them at home because it's mm. just so easy to get distracted from them not because they're 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 necessarily dull or anything it's just that they're paced in such a way that means that you have to sit there and you have to really concentrate on what's happening and uh, getting to see that on a big screen was uh, a real a real highlight for me uh, and, and I have a, a great fondness for that film as a result, even though I haven't seen it since, and I'm not sure I would ever watch it again if it, unless it was on the big screen, because I don't imagine it would have quite the same impact. Mm. Um, I think if I had to pick one, I think I'd probably pick Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Alien scares me too much to watch. Uh, it's, it's still kind of genuinely chills me to the bone, but Aliens kind of has it, or it's kind of a war film in space. Um, uh, and I think I watched that quite a lot, like a bit too much as a younger man, um, uh, as a youth. Um, so I think it's just particularly, and I kind of, I don't know, I just always wanted to be Bill Paxton um, in a weird way, um, rather than being Michael Bean. I always liked Paxton <laughs> a bit more. Um but yeah, I think that's my one. I also think that the last hour of that film is just like uh, just an immaculately constructed hour of blockbuster cinema. It's like almost in real time, isn't it? When they kind of they realise how how long they've got until the thing detonates, the, the whole planet detonates, and it's all it becomes a kind of race against time, and it's just so tense and terse and really well done. Even the kind of tacked on coda when the alien queens, you know, stows away quite improbably. Uh, on the ship and you see some of the clumsiest foreshadowing in films ever with the power loader um coming into play at the end um i you know i really don't mind that i think it works really well yeah it's a film that succeeds despite a lot of uh james cameron's worst tendencies Mm. oh yeah let's not forget that avatar the most successful film of all time is a science fiction film yeah i think that he's he's a very interesting figure at james cameron because i think he he is the one who most embodies the central contradiction of sci-fi cinema which is that it's so often about a fear of technology yet it requires technology in order to happen and he is someone who in his career has made some of the most technologically advanced and innovative films um of their time stuff like obviously um avatar with with its use of 3d but also uh, t2 in its use of cgi and uh, the Abyss in the same sort of way. But they're also deeply, deeply sceptical about technology. You know, his signature uh, creations are films in which robots created by humans travel back in time to try and kill us, mm-hmm. and uh, in which a... It's not a sci-fi, it's a sci-fi film, but, you know, Titanic, Titanic is entirely about the hubristic nature of mankind and their relationship with technology. And all of his films are just like <laughs> are completely reliant on that technology to exist. And um, he's always someone, even though I don't like all of his films, um, he's someone I always find really fascinating for the the contradictions he embodies. Mm. 
Yeah. I wonder if he appreciates the irony of of that, like when he's making Avatar 2 in 4D or whatever he's going to be doing. He's going to be thinking, you know, am I pushing the boundaries of, of human achievement or is this just more empty nonsense? Yeah, I think it's interesting also in, in terms of his documentary work, you know, him going to the bottom of the ocean in a little submarine and, and filming the results in IMAX and stuff like that. You can really see that he has a love for what technology can do and the wonders that it can reveal about the world. But that that is also in his films. Maybe it's just growing up in the shadow of nuclear war. It makes it, and the fact that pretty much all of his films uh, feature a nuclear bomb going off at some point. Uh, it probably has made him, uh, on the whole, quite sceptical about what technology means for, for mankind. Hmm. Well, you've mounted a defence of James Cameron. I've mounted a defence of Waterworld. Not really what I thought would come out of this <laughs> uh, discussion. Um, but, you know, there you have it. Um, so, yeah, please do check out anything involved in the BFI's uh, Days of Fear and Wonder season. Um, it is rather choice. And if there's anything going on near you, check it out because it's going on all over the country. Details are on their website. Um, if you've enjoyed today's show, then, uh, you know, Give us a like on Facebook, uh, kind of review us on iTunes, find us on Twitter, uh, hassle us generally if you didn't like it. Um, but, you know, just don't do that. Um, until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Picture, picture show.